This is the one with Raven robots. And how much does it steal from Poe? Lots. The pit, the pendulum, the black cat, freakish and absurd lore. And never more so closely quoted, it basically was Poe who wrote it. So slavishly the mad devoted author lifts what came before. A seething sick obsession grips his hand to lift what came before. And Doc picks up a couple of birds. War. <laughs> it's called Nevermore. Here, Here we go! go. <laughs> I forgot about that bit entirely. <laughs> Reviewing audiobooks now too, cause we love our Doctor Who. Encountering Wiran, Tarmadark, Dalek, Spacetime, Anglam Rock. Starlet films are awful, that's the TARDIS way. Where a punk in a Mary's K! That's Kane with a K! Who back when? Reviewing all the poo there is. Who back when? Subscribe and rate on iTunes, please. Audiobook by audiobook, even those are gobbledygook. We'll, we'll review them all, you see, so join us on this odyssey. It's who back when? Who back when? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another audio episode of Who Back When? <laughs> a Doctor Who podcast. Or Dogpast. I am Drew Back When, and ladies and gentlemen, Leon Ponkin still is sitting, still is sitting in a chair across from me, blackest microphone before. Well, hello there. Although I am rebranding. Yes, but, well, that's why I included both. So okay, fine. all your old fans would have time to catch up, Marvelous. and you could win a whole new world of listeners. I love it. It's, it's an excellent idea. By the way, <laughs> uh, uh, bravo, excellent Vincent Price. Oh, thank you. Uh, well done. How was mine? Yours was also excellent. Oh, thank you. Dan Harmon <laughs> would be proud. <laughs> because I feel like we can't overquote and overcopy Vincent Price and Edgar Allan Poe and the whole gothic shtick. That's true. This surely is the apogee of this on Doctor Who. How's your Bella Lugosi? Um, patchy? <laughs> I, I can't remember what he sounded like. Didn't he blunder around silently? Oh, maybe he did. Yeah, maybe he oh, was that yeah, one. Oh, yeah, you're right. Anyway, we're reviewing Nevermore. That's right. Written by Alan Barnes. Correct, Mundo. Who has written a not-ton of Who. Has he? Yeah, I looked him up on TARDIS Wikia. Never to be referred to as fandom. And <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. The list is excruciatingly long. And, wow. you know, really well done. Bravo. Tons of audiobooks. Mm -hmm. And I want to say a couple of novels as well, or a few novels. But also two Eighth Doctor Adventure audiobooks, which we have, both of which we have reviewed on Who Back When already. One is uh, oft-referenced Orbis. Yep. And uh, the other one is Death in Blackpool, which we did quite recently. Oh, that was him too. I mean, too. everything's relative, obviously, but yeah. So Doc stays stuck on a planet for 600 years and meets Drunk Father Christmas. Correct. That's right. And japes around in a service station. <laughs> that's Yes, that's exactly the one. Okay. I'm a little bit surprised, if I'm honest. Really? But before I expatiate on my surprise, <laughs> shall we give the listeners a B-Scout to orient them? I think that would be a lovely thing to do. Let's do that. Time for us to synopsize, lobify and summarize. So take a view and grab a brew and listen to this overview. This free for all. We like to call a bite-sized chunk of who. Bite-sized chunk of who? Dear 
Dear listener, pray abandon your customary taste for cheerful relaxation and peace of mind, for the tale we here commence to describe is played at such a pitch of depravity as would make those surest of their character and salvation by the true God buckle at the knees. The doctor and his unsuspecting companion Tamsin Drew, naive and innocent as to the wicked ways of the wider universe, are hurled by a machinating cat onto the surface of a hellish world wreathed in noxious mists. Accosted by brutish mechanical corvidae, they are drawn inexorably, irresistibly into the malevolent web of an imprisoned genocidaire, her prosecutor of old and his young ward, and all around them, resonating in the walls and invisibly across the poisonous ether, the restless spirit of Edgar Allan Poe is writ, framing them for a series of grisly murders, for which execution will be summary upon extortion of their confession, if they do not first succumb to death's cold touch out of sheer terror. Beast cow over, you are welcome. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> I may have betrayed some of my surprise in learning that Alan Barnes has written the nut ton, because although I suppose the hands at the tiller were sure, and at no point did I think this wasn't a fully realised Doctor Who episode... I maybe expected it to be better. Oh, really? JD telling us that this series was 5.0 after 5.0 was the worst thing he could have done. Yeah, it really upped our expectations massively, didn't it? Yeah. Because this, again, nowhere near, right? Yeah, agreed. I just looked up what we gave Death in Blackpool, so the the latest Alan Barnes opus. You gave it 3.9, I gave it 3.1. Yeah, I remember enjoying Drunk Father Christmas and the general careering around and some of the more poignant emotional moments. That's right. Sure. Yeah. But I feel like we've already had more fun with the Edgar Allan Poe stuff than Alan Barnes did in quoting copiously from him, admittedly, but not really running amok with it. Okay. I wasn't too bothered by that, to be honest. (laughs) In point of fact, I thought at times there was too much of it. Yes, no, that's what I mean. I mean, there was way too much of it. There were whole paragraphs lifted. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah, exactly. That That is, if anything, that's my problem with the Edgar Allan Poe aspect of it. That and the fact that, I mean, the, the robot raven prison guards didn't really, they didn't speak to me. Oh, they did. Slowly, at great length. Ah, ah, Leon, can't you hear <laughs> We slowed down everything. Okay, stop, 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 stop. Exactly. That was was the effect on me. Stop, stop, stop. My ears are throwing up into my brain right now. Well, there you go. There you go. If you haven't heard it, Podcast (laughs) Land, that's what you've got in store. Because, by the way, I did that without electronic jiggery-pokery, whereas the guy in the studio... Tut. <laughs> well, you're a professional. <laughs> no, I could be big finish. I, I, I could be. <laughs> That's not to say they're not professional. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and say I recommend this audiobook. Oh, good. Yeah. I listened to it twice, and I know that you did as well. Yes. And I think that it was enjoyable. I think it was creepy. I think it certainly at least showed enough profundity, narrative profundity, to be to be an interesting gothic adventure for the Doctor. Definitely, definitely. I do agree on all those points. But... I agree with the but. <laughs> but there are some major flaws in it for me as well, unfortunately, that I don't remember encountering in Death and Blackpool. Long ago as that was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, give us a flaw and I'll see if I can recognise it from Death in Blackpool times. Okay, well let's, let's start off with something which may very well be um, user error. It might be my fault entirely. I don't get the ending. I found the ending 
chaotic. Right. Absolutely chaotic. It seems as though the plot, or much of the plot, has been squished into the final handful of scenes... And everything leading up to it is ambience, and it's done very well, mechanical birds notwithstanding. It's done very well, but then we're force-fed so much plot towards the end that I didn't get it. And I I listened to it twice, and I figured towards the end of... Okay, so the first time I listened to the end of the audiobook, uh, the end of part two, I was on my bike going down the roads next to where I live, (laughs) 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 leaving it anonymous, and maybe not paying perfect attention. Today I listen to it a second time and I get to the ending and I figure, all right, well, now you've got to pay attention to this. You've got to figure out what, who's this cat? What's going on? Wait, what? Ha- what? Yeah, so you focused and nothing more was revealed. No, not really. To the point where I went, you know what? Sod it. I'm not going to listen to the last 10 minutes one more time. I'm just going to ask Drew. So can you please explain to me what actually happened? Well, I will first say that I agree with you in that... The ending is chaotic. Part two is paced quite badly, okay. but for a good reason. And I don't like to criticise pacing because it can be a very subjective thing in terms of, oh, I didn't like it, but I'm not going to tell you how it could be made better. Yeah. But I want you to think that all your writing is deficient in some vague way that I can just cite without backing it up. I think this was largely well written. It was well written. I, I have a problem with someone in charge of my writing society who I'm making a very thinly veiled dig at there but anyway, hope they're listening to this what i'm saying is when you when you criticize for pacing i mean they might be who isn't when you criticize for pacing it's very easy to say but very difficult to say how you would improve upon it necessarily it can, yeah it can be quite a, a glib arbitrary sort of criticism but this i think they were having so much fun when chief prosecutor uglosi was narrating from the pit and the pendulum they were just like we can't lose any of this this is the high point perhaps of the whole serial and we just gotta let him go with it and then whatever's left in the running time we'll tie up what we can so what i gathered was that the general who had committed the crime and led to the planet being uninhabitable yeah she had been not abandoned on the planet in solitary confinement as intended but she'd sort of been tormented by the mutants who'd survived who'd sort of psychically inhabited her so i believe on that basis the time lords decided that she had suffered enough that whatever level of punishment she was supposed to receive she'd served her time and they were going to or maybe not maybe do you know what i might actually i'm remembering a different bit now i think that the mutants they didn't realize the mutants were there yeah and they were like she is their way off the planet somehow okay see the ending is not clear to you either it's not particularly clear and so they were like if we let her free then from a utilitarian standpoint more mutants will also be freed from this hellish netherworld so berenice was a mutant survivor on this planet right Yes. And Berenice was adopted by Uglosi. I'm sorry, I just cut you off there very rudely. No, it's fine. But was Berenice also the cat? The 12 to 14 foot psychic cat that tears apart various people. Yes. Leading to the Doctor being framed. I think that's a psychic projection from her. Okay. Is that the same cat, or is she also the cat that appeared in the TARDIS in the beginning? No, that is a cat sent from the Time Lords to get the Doctor to do their dirty work. Oh, I see. Okay. See, I hadn't got that. Yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, this is intentionally confusing, because that way there's a tension over which cat they mean. Okay. Um, well, most of the time, I think the Ravens think they're going after the cat that's committing the murders, but they think that's the cat the Doctor has brought along, not realising there is a second cat. 
actually, on that point, I thought it was quite elegantly dumb that they're talking about what the pilot says. Oh, no, it was just the, it was the claws that killed blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, it was the claws that <laughs> killed me. We're going to talk about him in a moment. Uh-huh. But I thought it was elegantly done because it could also have been talons. It didn't have to be claws as in other cats. It could have been the robot ravens. Oh, right. You thought it might have been them. For a moment there, I thought, yeah, maybe. Okay. But okay, wait, hang on. Wait, 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 wait. So you were explaining this. <laughs> well, there's still a lot to unpack in the ending. Like, so much. What's her face? What's her name? Oh, I'm looking for her name now. Uh, Morella Vendico. She is the prisoner. She has yes. been there the whole time. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes exactly. Fine. Yeah. She, she is not the one with the cat with the psychic projection. That's Berenice. That's Berenice. She was just left there. For 20 years, and over that time, every mutant, over the course of that 20 years, word got around, and they all sort of piled into her brain space. Ah, see, I had missed this. I did not get that. So there's two sort of sets of psychic projecting going on. My understanding was just that people assumed that she was living a, a solitary life of luxury, in a way. But in actual fact, she had been tormented by someone... I did not realize that it was everyone who was still alive and mutated on this planet. Yeah, that's why she has a line towards the end, like, come back to me, creatures, we are many. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's much clearer to me now. But what about Uglosi? What about Uglosi? Because at the end, there is a countdown. Yes. Yes. Because he has decided to make the House of Usher fall. He has invoked Protocol Roderick, Roderick. or whatever it is. Yeah, Roderick Usher. To kill, well, I mean, I I think he started this off with the intent to kill Morello Wendigo. But then Doctor's like, you know what, you should let her go. But he doesn't stop the countdown. No, it, I mean, it's effectively some sort of suicide for him, isn't it? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I yeah. think he was going to take him and Morello with him. I think so too. But is it not also hinted that he, influenced by this other secretive Time Lord, I have theories, Oh, played a part in the actual destruction of Corinth Minor? Of this planet. Well, yes. Yes, he did. He he was the one who went to Morella with the idea. Exactly. Yeah. So he's not just the prosecutor. He was the brains behind it, in a way. Well, the, the other Time Lord was the brains behind it. He was the hand that swayed Morella Wendigo. Yeah, and Morella did his dirty work, much yes. like the Doctor is being made to do the Time Lord's dirty work, except Morella actually wanted, regardless of her protestations at the beginning, towards the end, she reveals that actually she wanted to um, stop the peace being signed and wanted to go on and... Yes, exactly. And rule the system herself or whatever it was. Yeah, so she wasn't she wasn't a great person. No. Okay. Yeah. But, but yes, he continues the countdown. He's, he's hell-bends on suicide. And if you're new to the podcast, uh, dearest listener, Drew has a thing about countdowns. He doesn't like them. No, I especially, I especially <laughs> don't like hearing robot ravens croaking them out in the background. 59, 58, yeah. 57. Yeah, yeah. That's what's next. <laughs> it's, oh, it loud. They stop at 53 mercifully. But, 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 but. The Doctor has been teasing, tantalising yeah. Uglosi with the promise of Edgar Allan Poe's last words, his, yes. his, his last theory as to what is going on, the, the culmination of his madness. 
that the last words from the master, as Aglosi says. Yes, that's in which, my notes as well. Which could be interesting foreshadowing. That was theory number one. It's not theory number two. Uh-huh. Yeah, anyway. And basically, I'm sorry to be recapping the ending, especially for people who've heard it. Do you mean the Edgar Allan Poe's last words? Is that what you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, and how they're in the bottle, but actually the bottle wasn't empty and it all got washed away. Yeah, and the doctor just flushed it. Yeah, and he's got nothing to say but fragments that don't make any sense. And Aglosi just starts laughing. Yeah. And I get that this is a Vincent Price thriller echo, perhaps. Or maybe at the end of any number of Edgar Allan Poe stories, the narrator just dissolves into maniacal fits of insane laughter. But well, he it- knows that he's about to die. He's set his own suicide clock. He knows he's about to die. He may as well just laugh at the folly of, you know what? No, I didn't get to hear the last words because there were no last words. Why not? Yeah, my, my whole life has been a sham. I mean, look where I am. It, the story fits. I don't fully understand why he had to be obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe. To the point where, so he is he is one of the guilty parties behind the destruction of Corinth Minor, yep. or the genocide on Corinth Minor. He is the prosecutor in the case against what's her face, uh, Morella Wendigo. He is also apparently the person who designed the entire prison. Yep. So at no point does he go right. So here's what we're gonna do, chaps. Right. We're gonna we're gonna put her in a prison. We're gonna make it very luxurious. And everyone goes, oh great, great. Shall we have like some sort of surveillance system. I mean, there's no way for her to leave the planet, so do we even need gods? Yeah, we need gods. They need to be robot ravens that quote Edgar Allan Poe. And no one ever went... Oh, th- this guy is not okay. <laughs> like, he has some shit he needs to work out. Maybe let's take this to a committee and you take a sabbatical, you know. How, do, yeah, how maybe, did he make that happen? Maybe he's been working on the case a little too a long. A little too long, yeah. But also... <laughs> He adopts a daughter, Berenice. He gives her a name from Paul's writing. She doesn't have her own name, I assume. Whatever. It, just doctor, overwrite her. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, the doctor says... You belong to me now. The doctor does clarify that that's a name that was given to her by him. Yeah. So, but presumably she also has a recollection of what happened on that planet. She turns into a cat monster. She has motivation. She has agency. I'm just going to skip back to the ending just briefly. Okay, go for it. Because that is another confusing element. Throughout the serial, she is very timid and timorous. And Is she putting on a show then? Stuttering and quaking at one point, perhaps. But when the cat is revealed, you sort of hear her growing into her, yeah. her evilness. And her voice it takes on the the manic charge and and you can hear the the enjoyment but then a minute later she's back to oh no father oh no <laughs> and it's so all over the place and this is after they know what's happened yeah yeah so she's not just playing up then afterwards and she can't control it but it's not hinted that she can't control it yeah i don't really know what i expected more of a fight really in fact that's that's another thing that ties in with the ravens throughout at one point they say ravens uh, uh, what do they, they? It basically says ravens knock the dock and Tamsin out, and then the ravens just go, <laughs> and you don't hear Tamsin going, "Oi, bugger off!" or the dock going, "Oh, you've hit me! Ouch! Whoops! There, down I go!" All that business. It's they, just done. It's one-sided. I'm fine with it. Yeah, I'm fine with it. I did. Mm. I mean, I'm fine with it to the degree that. I, I didn't notice that. <laughs> I didn't pick up on it. <laughs> while you were, I, while on, you were avoiding death on two wheels on exactly, the county road. Exactly, yeah, on my very squeaky bike. Okay, do you want to hear a Doctor Who connection? Yes, please. The pilots, also Edgar Allan Poe, 
played by Eric Lauren. Okay. Two dodgy American accents for the price of one. <laughs> he is American. He is. And he played the human Dalek in Evolution of the Daleks. No! Yes. Which I think I remember at the time us going, these accents are some of the worst. Oh, I'm pretty sure he is American. Did you hear the behind the scenes interview? Oh, he was from Massachusetts, wasn't he? That's him, right? I'm pretty sure that's him. Yes. Yeah, anyway. I think he's been living in the UK a little too long. Possibly. Because they also said that the woman who played Morella Wendigo. Fenella Woolgar. Agatha Christie. Oh. In Unicorn and the Wasp. Oh, wow. Yes. Well, well, well. That's right. So playing very English there and here very much not. And is English. But Paul McGann said that she grew up in America. Oh, yes. And that's I right. didn't know that. And that's why she's so convincing. Yeah, that's is right. she? <laughs> I feel like I'm allowed to criticise because I've been married to an American for nearly 10 years and most of the American accents in this serial, I was not looking for them to be bad, but they just struck me as way off. Well, every time that I heard the pilot or indeed Edgar Allan Poe, I kept thinking back to um, whatever it's called, Evolution of the Daleks. Yeah. I wanted someone to be a stereotypical TV gangster. New York, New York gangster, eh? I can't do the accent. You know what I mean. That evolution of the Daleks, over the top, crazy bananas, unrealistic New York gangster, possibly not portrayed by an American. Yeah. And for that reason, maybe I was trying to hear a fake American accent. But I, my impression of him is that he is actually American, based solely on the behind-the-scenes shit. Okay, well, we've also got Amelia Fox, who plays Berenice. Oh, yes, yes. Solidly English, as far as I'm aware. Hello. Yep, that's that's me confirming. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's been in a ton of English telly. She's been the lead doctor in Silent Witness oh, for yeah? nearly two decades now. Oh, there you go. So her accent was definitely in and out. But I didn't really get why there were so many stabs at American accents in this completely alien system. Was it because they had Michael J. Shannon as senior prosecutor Aglosi and they were just like, well, everyone else has to fit him? <laughs> We got the big name. So I looked him up. I, I, well, I saw Michael J. Shannon. I was like, wait, is that Michael Shannon? It's not Michael Shannon. It's, a Michael, it's Michael J. Shannon. Well, Michael Shannon has been Michael J. Shannon in various credits. So I think... Is it the same Michael... I don't think it's... I don't... You're thinking, what's his face from Boardwalk Empire and uh, Neil Before Zod and whatever. Is that what you're thinking I'm, of? I'm thinking of... He played... The one I looked up on IMDb played JFK in an episode of Red Dwarf and the president's aide in Superman 2. In Superman 2? Yeah. That's pretty great. Because um, <laughs> Michael Shannon played General Zod in Man of Steel. Oh. So that's a nice connection, I feel. We need to figure out which one this I'm looking is. this up right now, dude. This is going to be incredible. Stay tuned to Podcast Land. Michael J. Shannon. Yep. On IMDb. How many can there be? Well, that's certainly not the Michael Shannon I was thinking of. He was a board member, too, in Dark Shadows. This is the guy. This oh, is yeah, the guy he's I was president's aide in Superman 2. Yeah, that's right. So just to clarify, the Michael Shannon I was thinking of. The struggle for supremacy among is, the Michael Shannon. Is Shannons. this Michael Shannon? Oh, no, I don't know that guy. Yeah, he was in the other Superman movie. Anyway. He's this generation's Superman Michael he's, Shannon. He's this generation's Michael Shannon. Yeah. Actually, they're both this... You know what I mean. <laughs> so does Michael J. Shannon. So sorry. No, wait, we can't say that. He, I, I thought he was fine. He was great. He was... In fact, he may have been one of the most wonderful parts about this whole thing. Dialogue notwithstanding, not his fault that his role is suddenly to just regurgitate someone else's words. 
I guess that's yeah, I just defined acting. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what he turned up to do. He was like, you want me to improv this? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean For that re- you recite- want Michael J. Shannon the <laughs> third. Sorry, I, I meant recites Edgar Allan Poe's verse. Yeah, but in the interview at the end Ad nauseum. In the interview at the end, he said about how he loved the gothic sort of oeuvre and yeah, but he grew up he, in that theatrical tradition. Doesn't he isn't he also the chap who's like, Oh, I googled Edgar Allan Poe this morning and, and I That was re- Amelia Fox. Oh, that was Amelia Fox. Oh right. Okay, sorry. I can't tell them apart. I don't view the world through that lens. Yeah. How how very <laughs> forward thinking of you. <laughs> That's what we want. We want the inability to pass anything. <laughs> anyway, point is, I thought he was wonderful. So, Michael J. Shannon, if you're listening, nicely done. Come on the show. Talk to us about this. Michael Shannon, sans J, if you're also listening, you know Michael J. Shannon, buddy. <laughs> well, you don't know that. <laughs> his, his middle name is, like, Jonathan. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, very yeah, different, right. very different. Yeah, anyway... What were you going to say? I was going to say that I really enjoyed when he was chewing the scenery with the pits and the pendulum. And you see it slowly descending towards you with the sharpness of a thousand knives. And you cannot escape. And he did that so much better than I could. I loved it. That was was wonderful. For me, that was when the atmosphere really did approach what I wanted out of this. There you go. Thing. And that was also... But that's another element at the same time of some sci-fi... Some sci-fi aspects of this story being just shoved in at the end. I loved the idea of, oh, wait, hang on. There's this stereophonic mind control gizmo. Yeah. But it had never been set up. No idea that was going to happen. But I I loved that it was there. But once it was there, I wanted it to be used more. I wanted there to be other aspects of this. Why is it there? Why is there some sort of torture device there? The whole torture element of her imprisonment is that she lives in luxury. Why is there stereophonic torture earphones? Yeah, who is going to apply them to her? Exactly. No one. Are the ravens going to do that with their beaks? Like, how is this going to work? Oh, oh, the ravens. Yeah, no. I, this is my point. Not. Of course not. So did he bring them? If so, why? Do mm. prosecutors just regularly have torture devices on them? I don't know. Maybe it gets... Or it, was, it wasn't to get Morella Wendigo into a place where she was basically going to do whatever he wanted because he was there to protect her, it turns out, from the person he was carrying around with him. But he didn't know that. Yeah. So, yeah, what are these for? I suppose maybe to disable the assailant when they arrive. And that's exactly what is, in fact, happening, he thinks. So, yeah, he came prepared. Yeah. So there's some reason for it. We touched upon the sci-fi elements wrapped around Poe. Yeah. And it brought to mind for me Robot Sherwood, which at this point was the last New Who that we reviewed. Yes. Because in that, similarly, there is this great stock of old tales, beloved of a certain segment of people. Yeah. And here, they basically sort of bolt to who onto it. And in the same way as I really liked all the Robin Hood elements of Robot of Sherwood, I liked all the Edgar Allan Poe elements here, and I felt like in both cases, I wanted more of that at the expense of Doctor Who. And that is not what you want to be doing when you're producing a Doctor Who episode. When, when I'm listening and I hear a florid line and I think that was clearly written by a master of literature rather than the writer of the week. It's sad, isn't it? It is, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. And also because the lines of Edgar Allan Poe, Alan Barnes, okay, he chose the best ones. I get that. You want to choose the real zingers and pack them in. But then they plunge all the sci-fi editions into such umbrageous shadow 
because they tower so high above. I can't give this episode a very high mark because it, it, Alan Barnes stuff doesn't come close. The bug in the ears is diverting and then it's gone. What about the idea as a whole? Does, does he not score points in your mind for the idea? Oh, as in the whole politics of the Corinthian system? Yes, and, exactly. Oh, definitely. Cut a few elements of this story. Chain, it, remove the ravens, or at least tone them down. You know what? No, remove the ravens entirely. That's already a much more pleasant story for me. Like it, it, uh, yeah. It's already bump, been bumped up a few decimals. And bumped down a few decibels. <laughs> I feel like he deserves some credit here. I feel like he did a pretty good job. He probably also had some guidelines because there's this wider arc of the secrets, Time Lords, pulling strings in the background. Mm-hmm. So he probably had a renegade at large. Yes, exactly. He probably had some guidelines which then informed the backstory of this. I had to write around those parameters, and I think he did a very good job. I think he did a good job. Yeah, wait, I, ret- <laughs> I retract my very, I retract my very, but I, I think he did, did a good job. Okay, I was just thinking, of course you can have both elements, as in an existing property yeah. and Doctor Who in the same one, and mesh them and see what comes out of the merging and synthesizing, but how many Robin Hood fans are going to add Robot of Sherwood to their rewatch list? And how many Edgar Allan Poe fans are going to want to listen to this again, yeah. rather than just hearing the stories read out by Christopher Lee or something? Sure. No, I, I mean, I take your point. Okay, looking at it from the other way, it is a good way to introduce kids to the Robin Hood uh, myths and or fables or whatever they are, and... This made me want to get my Edgar Allan Poe book out again. So I I suppose in that way it succeeds. Is this maybe one of the problems with... Okay, this story doesn't really fit into that mold, but is this a problem that we normally encounter with pseudo-historicals? Where Doctor Who is transposed into a historical setting, often with someone recognisable. Nikola Tesla, for instance. Nikola Tesla we just had. Yes, that's right. Or Shakespeare. Queen Victoria. The Doctor's done this for over 50 years. Nearly 60 years, in fact. And... Every single time, the contemporary BBC writer has to try to mimic some of the dialogue and some of the ambience that, if not authentic, at least is something that we associate with those times. And almost every single time, it's going to fall short. Yeah, and in terms of having Shakespeare in an episode, it's got to be more digestible than his usual language and register, because otherwise, how is anyone going to follow that? Yeah, exactly. And then you also have to write a story. The Shakespeare Code is probably a pretty good comparison here, because you have someone whose language is revered by a tremendous amount of people, by scholars around the world. And then you have a handful of really quite crap sci-fi elements <laughs> bolted onto that setting. Yeah. And, and then you have a few others that are actually quite good. Mm-hmm. And then you have also, wait, also in both of them, the introduction of a companion. Oh, yeah. That's the first Martha one, right? Nah, Smith and Jones. Oh, it's the second Martha one. It's the first Martha in the TARDIS. It's the first Martha historical one, yeah. Yeah. Okay, fine. I mean, we got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't like that one either, and I bet you I haven't listened to that review in a while. I'll happily go back and revisit that review of ours, but I bet you we said some of the same things. It probably went, I mean, I mean whoever crafted it, like the writer's room, they're no William Shakespeare. No. It would be incredible if they were. That's right. They would be too good for Doctor Who if they that's were. That's right, but that's why I'm saying I think this might be one of the problems that you encounter when you do a, a pseudo-historical, or as is the case here, a sci-fi story influenced by history, where 
you, you set your target so incredibly high that it is unattainable. Okay, so I shouldn't necessarily take too many points off is what you're saying. I think possibly we just need to change our perspective on it a teeny tiny bit. Yeah. It was, I suppose, I just I got... couldn't write like Edgar Allan Poe. No. I mean... Necessarily. I don't know, actually. Who knows? <laughs> I, I, I would be able to mount a pastiche of it, but it would run out after a few paragraphs and just eat itself. There you go. I would be using his vocabulary with none of his verve and, and spirit and inventive capacity. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, I, gu- I guess that's what's happening. So what do you do? How do you, how do you integrate these things? Because I got annoyed every time I heard a good line, I would whack it into Google, bang, it's Edgar an Edgar Allan Poe. Poe. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's uh, the premature burial or the fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, we are premature. Here's a weird one. Alongside all of those lines, all of those quotes and paraphrases in some cases, there are a few, at the, at the, I only made a note of one here now, but I know that there were a few lines that seemed desperately out of place. Okay. Edgar Allan Poe himself in this audiobook. Oh, I liked the fact that they went back with the doctor oh, to see him. I love that as well. Yeah, I, I love that, that was, detour. I thought that was a wonderful idea. Yeah. I could have stayed there longer, yep, frankly. I, I didn't see it coming. Uh, nor I. I think it's lovely. The only shame is that I wonder if we've now consumed Edgar Allan Poe. You know, can we go back? Maybe we can go back. We can go back with a later iteration of the Doctor. Yeah. Anyone post-Eighth Doctor. Yeah. So go. you're saying Marie can go and visit Edgar Allan Poe, and we can do this serial properly. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm adding that to my list of items for the potential next audio. He's not podcast land. I'm... He was just wiggling his hands above. He's not even above the keys. <laughs> I can see you, dude. I'm right here. Okay, okay. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm adding it. I'm adding it right now. Okay, hang on. Okay, he's typing something. I can't tell there you. There you go. What. I even put it in bold. Okay, wait. Hang on. So the thing, that I, the thing that I wanted to say was, does Edgar Allan Poe use the term ghost busting? He blooming does, you know. That's oh, he- oh, as in in this. Yeah. But I, I don't know if he did in any of his fiction. What, you think so? Well, I would I would love to think that Ghostbusters is in some way a callback to Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe. Wouldn't that but, be wonderful? But just because I want something doesn't make it true. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's the case. But someone had to come up with it. I mean... Yeah, that show in the 70s. Yeah. Whose title was then for some reason adopted for the movie Ghostbusters that we all love. And the sequel, which was a soft remake. And the remake, which was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and the upcoming Ghostbusters sequel. Afterlife. Yeah. Which may still be good. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yes. So that did stand out. Took me out of it. Yeah. I mean... Oh, dear. Should I Google it right now? I feel like there were other things in here as well. No, I can't find anything in my notes. I didn't make it. I was on my bloody bike. I couldn't write. It's very difficult to tell from a Google search because obviously so much comes up around Ghostbusters and Edgar Allan Poe and people have just associated the two. I'm just going to say no, that's not the case. Yeah. (laughs) As far as we know, podcast land, if we're wrong, do write in. Please do. Pop a comment on the website. Not just on Facebook. Pop it on the website, please. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the hub. That's going to long outlive Facebook. (laughs) Whoback.com. Facebook is on its last legs. <laughs> Government regulators are never going to come after us. Yeah, thanks for helping, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, topic change? Let's. couple of suggestions. Suggestion number one, the companion. Suggestion number two, the other time lord. Let's take them in order. Okay. The companion. Start us off while I pour some vodka. So this is the first full episode 
as the singular companion rather than as someone as part of an audition process of Tamsin Drew from Dulwich, who couldn't be bothered changing careers or interviewing to find a new job. She was an actress <laughs> who couldn't pass any auditions and she complained her way into the doctor's heart. And so here she is. And the doctor now seems monstrously fond of her. He really does, doesn't he? Yeah, he's having a whale of a time taking around the deepest recesses of the, of the TARDIS. And that's all very well and good. But then she develops an obsession with this cat. Yeah. And she loses the ability to listen to reason. Agreed. And even at the very end of the episode, she still, despite the doctor's wishes, orders, whatever, fucking around with this cat. She's learned <laughs> nothing. What did you think of her? No, I, I, some of those things are, are in my notes as well. Tamsin running for the cat is just dumb, I've written. The behind-the-scenes interviews afterwards seem to make a bigger deal of the discrepancy between Tamsin Drew and... Lucy Miller. Lucy Miller, thank you. <laughs> you got my back. A greater disparity between these two characters than I myself am able to perceive. Okay. So here are some of the things that they said. This character is bolshier. I disagree. This character is intellectual. I I mean, that's possible, but I see no evidence of it. The fullest extent of the evidence possible is, is in... Is the Nuremberg reference? Maybe. And what I'm saying is, in total, maybe four snarky lines. References to yeah. things. Yeah, that's true. Where the doctor might get his laundry done in London, or tailoring, or something. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. you won't be able to take that back to Taylor and Whalers or whatever. Oh, right. Oh, that was such a throwaway line. I didn't really pick up on it. Well, that's it, what I'm saying. The, the intellectualism resides entirely in throwaway lines, at least here. Take that on on the one hand. On the other hand, the fact that despite the... Well, despite the fact that they haven't spent that much time together, this is ostensibly her very first trip anywhere in the TARDIS. Yeah. She's nowhere near shocked enough. Like, she's not given scope to react to her new surroundings. She does a bit... A teeny, Very briefly, a teeny tiny When she's like, oh, bit. is this an alien planet? Oh, I might need to sit down. Yeah, but that is, that's not enough. Imagine you're brought to an alien world for the first time. You would react in one way or another that, regardless which way it's pointing, is going to be so much more extreme than anything that we heard from her. So what I feel is happening here is that this could, bar a few lines, easily have been a Lucy Miller adventure. Yes, yes. Um, and also at the end in those post-credit interviews, as you say, they were saying about how the Doctor has to explain stuff to her because she's new that he wouldn't have to explain to yeah, Lucy. that's one line. That is one line. That and then just and, one line. And then they quote, they well, and then they play the line Yeah, which, and you've heard it. You've heard that point now three times. Yeah. And and that's it. They're, they're not signposting. They are just recapping. Yeah. That's, that's not enough. You're right. And then another element is the fact that they are, I mean, they're so comfortable with each other and he is so fond of her, as you said, that willing to forgive any amount of idiocy. Yeah, including the betrayal-ish of the previous audiobook in which she was introduced under a fake name. This level of comfort between two characters, this familiarity, is unexpected between two characters who have just met. It is, however, very much in line with the kind of relationship he had with Lucy Miller. And for that reason, I I mean, the voice is different, the acting is slightly different, but, I mean, it's the same companion to me. I wonder ish, if... Ish. I, ish. You mentioned a theory number two earlier. There's a renegade time lord yeah. about. I mean, this, this over-familiarity isn't a way of masking a suspect. No. Nope. You don't I don't think, think so. You don't oh, think wait, Tamsin Drew could be... Because she rocked up right when this all started going down. That's true. Oh, that's very true. And at some point, Lucy Miller's coming back, right? 
Yeah. So that's an interesting theory. Yeah. You know what? I take it back. That could that could very well be the case, and it wouldn't necessarily negate my theory. Okay. All right. Let's hear the actual theory number two. Okay. So my theory is based on one single line in this audiobook, which, as we've already said, is enough to cover an entire topic for these writers. And the trailer for the next audiobook preceding this one. Right, for the Book of Kells. That's right. A024. So in this one, in uh, whatever this one's called, Nevermore, we have in part two a couple of lines. Line number one, you knew the master in reference to Edgar Allan Poe. Yep. And this is shortly before, I think. No, this is, yeah, this is shortly before the whole story about the renegade time lord who gave Uglosi the background info. Yes, the time space breach, or the time travel breach class no, one. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So possibly my thought at the time was this could be, I'm, I'm hoping, at this point I'm hoping, okay, this is the first time I'm listening to the audiobook, I'm yeah, hoping yeah. that this is going to be the master. Uh-huh. Then the second time I'm listening to this audiobook, and preceding it is the trailer for the Book of Kells. And the Book of Kells takes place in an abbey, and there are references to lots of monks. Mm-hmm. And another line in part two oh. is is the doctor saying that he is sick and tired, I'm paraphrasing this now, he's sick and tired of, quote, monkish behavior. Oh. And and also, in the trailer for The Book of Kells, he says, tell me this is the year 1006, I think he says. Yep. So we have once in a fantastic, a wonderful William Hartnell first Doctor serial called The Time Meddler. Yep. Gone to 1066. Shortly thereafter, by Time Lord standards, and met a Time Lord, a renegade Time Lord called the Meddling Monk. Correct, the Monk. And I am—I mean, I'm hoping that this is the case because wowie, would I be excited <laughs> to have the Monk, right? Oh, okay, yeah. I—I I hope that would—I hope that comes true because that would be much better than my half-hour theory two and a half. Were you thinking of the Master? I was thinking of the Master. Then I was thinking of Tamsin and just Missy, etc. Yeah, I was I was thinking of if she was the renegade time lord, then then it wouldn't matter so much that none of what came before made sense because we'd be like, oh, but that's so, such a good device, and how did you manage to carry that through? And oh, we'll overlook all these other flaws. So that's why I was hoping that might be the case. Uh-huh. But no, now I like your meddling monk idea, and I hope that's the case. And it is hard for me sometimes to remember that this is all pre-time war, and well, that's true, yeah, and. McGann can talk about going to the Lord High President of Gallifrey because this is the classic period still and they're all there and there are Time Lords everywhere, all over the universe. It's, it's up to your eyeballs in them. I, before we move on to the next subject, by the way, it's just dawned on me, uh, given when we're dropping this podcast, please, uh, if you're interested in reading more about the monk, head on over to whobackwhen.com because at this point, the latest entry on the Who Back When blog will be the very latest creative writing entry as well by renegade Gallifreyan writer uh, Cecilia Doss, who has written... I, I don't want to spoil anything, but read it. It mm. might have some monkery in it. Ooh, a bit of monkery. A bit of monkery. Jiggery monkery, love it. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly my favourite line from um, uh, The Time Meddler, by the way. No more monkery! <laughs> <laughs> so good. I should come back and say something good about Tamsin Drew. Please do. Because I did like the actress. Yeah, as did I. Nikki Wardley, when she turns from Oh, he's a grumpy old cat daddy, isn't he? To, I'll just scratch a great flea bag. It's, she's got a range. And when she's being buried alive, I the panic. It's fantastic. And, and when um, the red mist is getting her as well, that had the potential to sound 
terrible. But she is putting all her acting chops into sounding like she's choking and being asphyxiated. Really good stuff. Really brought She's great. Home. She's yeah. great. She's possibly also intended to be slightly more action-packed because she endures all of these hellish torments and then comes out the other side, maybe not smiling, but she does nonetheless. Yeah. She also gets a bit of backstory in this one. She studied contortion and lockpicking. Oh, yes. That That's setting her up for future action-slash-escape scenes, right? Definitely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then embarked on a 20-year Frappuccino binge. (laughs) She she did have some good lines in this one. I liked some of the ones about um, somewhere a charm school should be issuing an apology. Yes, that was a a nice one. And possibly also a line that Lucy Miller would not have uttered. Yeah. So I'll I'll give him that. No, she was fantastic. There was one point where she was too good. Oh, oh, interesting. Which is when she is being prematurely buried. Yeah. And she is... I'm not going to say the word I'm not going to say. She is... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because, you know, it's fairly gendered in its history. But anyway, she is, to the max, expressing the terror of that situation. Whereas the doctor... Oh, I understand that. I know the word you were thinking. Yep. yep. <laughs> okay. The doctor, alongside, is facing down a masterclass of acting and NLP and manipulation from Michael J. Shannon. Correct. Nailing every reading, every word, full of a manic energy setting his mind ablaze but mcgann is just well i don't believe you i don't believe you at all no i mean yes i can see it yes and what do you expect me to say and he is so unflustered i thought the amount of times they have tenant be scared so you'll be scared of the villain too or or smith with that weird man in that tiny world what's the one the weird man in the tiny world weird man in the tiny shrinking dark city world and oh yeah it's coming back in it oh and the guy's basically a skull on on sort of an arthropod body. Something about hide. Hiding? Hide. Is it hide? Is it? Oh, because next week is listen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It could be hide. And maybe it's called hide? It's the one where in our review we went like, who hid? Yes. <laughs> I feel like it's called it. hide. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It was hiding in plain sight the episode all along. Hey, oh. It was Vord hiding in our memories. <laughs> <laughs> Smith, there, does his best to be as afraid as possible and be like, oh, wow, you know, this really is affecting poor old Doc. That's true. But McGann is so imperious. Nothing could ever flap McGann. He is unflappable. Well, McGann, McGann's Doc is, first off, my goodness, do I love this, this Doctor. Okay. He's wonderful. But in this particular scene, one of the reasons why... Because he exhibits such panache and such control over situations, it's such a... Such a sophisticated, gentlemanly, debonair way. No, I love it. He's wonderful. Yeah, okay. His hair. My goodness. But... Great radio. In this particular scene... Well, I mean, just... I know. I should be imagining it in every scene. Watch any picture of... Watch the Doctor Who movie. Yeah. That floppy hair, marvellous. And that's the doctor, that's the eighth doctor version we have here, I think. I don't think we have the short heads. No, 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 no. no. Uh, 50th anniversary, eighth doctor. Anyway, wait, back to McGann. In this scene, yeah. floppy hair or not, he seems to have a particular skill that perhaps allows him to be unflappable. As in shutting down the right hand side of his body. Exactly. Well, perhaps, yes, get to that eventually, but that's quite a a gamble. Why doesn't he try the left side first and be like, oh, you know what? (laughs) No, that's... There's there's a one in two chance he gets it wrong the first time, has to reboot that side, has to... All the blood has to flow back into it. He has to undo his 
full half body stroke. Yeah, no, there's there's like a Roger Moore level of blasé about yes. his his demeanor in this scene. Yes, he is utterly but, blasé. And I even thought, when he goes like, oh, oh, sorry, no, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. Well, I just thought it detracted from Michael J. Shannon giving his absolute everything. What is otherwise my favorite point of the episode, and and. The high watermark of the gothic madness, and McGann is just McGanning through it. Yeah, but didn't you enjoy his very Bondian one-liner, or like his his little reference? But when when he glows, he goes, "Well, normally we put one in each ear," and he just casually adds, "Oh, stereo." <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? I loved it. It is wonderful, but I I just couldn't feel the peril. Okay, I, I, well, no, I felt no peril either. Whereas over in in the other side, this is also why it's so dissonant. Amelia Fox is doing a much worse version of reading out the premature burial. And she's going, yeah. you should be really scared now. And Townsend Drew, Nikki Wardley is acting her ass off. And she is scared to the ultimate degree. Yeah. It should be the other way around. Should it? Well, wait, why should it be the other way around? Because you have... Surely she should be more scared. She should be more scared as a human, sure. But you have someone doing a really unconvincing job and scaring the pants off someone. And someone doing a fantastic job, really bringing the theatricality and having zero effect. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And I, I get, get that, that there's a the human has, time lord difference. Yeah, and the Doctor, it's also a question of experience. I mean, the Doctor's been in a bajillion scary situations. His life has been threatened a million times, or a bajillion, somewhere in between. Whereas she, Tamsin, it, it's happened like once in the last audiobook, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, okay. I don't know, maybe devil's advocate, dude. I, like, I, I don't know. No, no, I, I, I'm I get, partially I, accepting your argument here. I get your point, though. I, it's perfectly valid. I don't think they intended for, uh, what's her face, Berenice's delivery to be as ineffectual, though. I mean, I, no. I, I think on paper... It's it's meant to be just as effective as his. Yeah. Possibly even more eerie and unpredictable. Yes. I'm not saying she completely fell flat. No. But over on the other side of the curtain, or in the next room, this guy is reaching a crescendo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, I'll this, cut that. I'll cut that. I'll cut that. <laughs> this is the climax of all his Edgar Allan Poe domination fantasies. <laughs> Shall we say? Yes. <laughs> Whether accompanied by bodily fluids or not. Whether this makes sense after I've cut my bed from before. I think you can probably guess. <laughs> what would Leon have said? Who knows? Mm, yes. Tamsin being buried alive. Remind me, because my Edgar Allan Poe is a little rusty. Is this a reference to the casket of Montiardo? No, this is the premature burial. Oh, right. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, d- I know very little about Poe. I don't know what the cask of Amontillado... Uh, sherry? Lovely Wait, sherry. Uh, Someone's died lord- from drinking too much sherry. Well, uh, a chap gets lured into the wine cellars and then buried alive, like walled in. Oh, he loves that, doesn't he? Yeah. Any sort of cavity behind a structure in a house. There's a telltale heart under the floorboards. There's a black cat in yeah. the panel in the wall. Bloody hell, Poe. Actually, I must say, and this is very juvenile criticism here, but I read some of the black cat. Oh, yeah? And the speed with which he goes from being annoyed at the cat to, oh, and I've shoved an axe into my wife's brain. Okay, she's dead. Where do I put the body? It just seemed like a four-year-old sort of <laughs> writing task first assignment for infant school. It was just... Bang, bang, bang. And I get that it's shocking, but goodness sake, it, it seemed quite, I don't know, underdone. 
Oh, interesting. What was that written for, though? As in, what kind of publication was that written for? Oh, Penny Dreadfuls? I don't know. Yeah, either that or... I mean, was it intended to be... Mr. Poe, you have four pages to get to the the climax of this story. Yeah. We don't have time for your mawkish reminiscences about how fine your marriage was. <laughs> okay, okay. Perhaps. Fine, okay. I don't know the context. So, axe to the head? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he, maybe he wrote axe. 20... Shall I take a hatchet to the head? No, an axe. That saves some, some letters. <laughs> some space. We need more advertisements, Mr. Poe. <laughs> okay, here's another missed opportunity. Oh, wait, hang on, sorry. Maybe it's not missed. Maybe there is a reference to this. Maybe you missed it. Maybe I did miss it. Is there a connection to Pluto? Well, in Nevermore, he talks about the raven from the Knight's Plutonian shore. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, what, you mean the the dwarf planet Pluto? Yeah, why not... Why is this Corinth Minor in the whatever system? Why why not put it on Pluto? The guy's obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, 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 oh! Do you see my my oh, point? Oh yeah, that would be that good. feels like a missed opportunity. Yeah, and you could you could even have Plut- the Plutonians going against the Cerasoids because Ceres is Pluto's moon. Oh okay, and nice. so then you've got the major minor Bingo. colonial internecine Bingo. conflict. Bingo! Big finish. You're listening to this, right? Yeah, ten years too late, but they're listening. <laughs> but we're planning on writing another one this year, so uh, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, and he yeah. wrote it down in bold. Hit us up. Who back when? <laughs> okay, picking a random bullet point from my my list of very random notes. Welcome ha- as always. Hastily scribbled after disembarking from my uh, velocipedes, and <laughs> thinking to myself, <laughs> must not forget any of the the bullet points I mentally wrote down on my way uphill. Must not forget any of these notes. Uglosi. Yes. Anagram of Lugosi, mm-hmm. Bella Lugosi, we mentioned him before. Yep. I looked up Bella Lugosi um, on IMDb. I, I, this was also mentioned, actually, for the record. This was also mentioned in the behind-the-scenes interview thing. Bella Lugosi was in the TV, the, the film adaptation of The Black Hat. With Boris Karloff. Yes. Yeah. Aha. Pretty cool. Protégé of Houdini, the doctor. Yeah. Maybe this rang a bell. Well, like he said it elsewhere. Yeah. I th- I think this has come up before. I can't remember if this is an audiobook or if this is something else. But I, I feel like that's come up before. And I like it. Houdini is another one of these characters. Uh, not characters. Another one of these people that if he hasn't already appeared on Doctor Who, mm. and it's po- perfectly possible that he has, and we just haven't gotten to it yet or I've forgotten it, but if he hasn't, why? <laughs> He's yeah. Harry Houdini. Like, surely we need a Harry Houdini episode. Yeah, absolutely. Is it I felt this way about Tesla just the other night, by the way. Has there, have, How can we not have had Tesla before? Well, have the writers been cherry of involving too many American cultural figures and icons? You've got to get through all the English ones first or have three English ones for every American one. Well, we're doing a bajillion American connections in the seasons 11 and 12. Yeah, we are, but we sold out at this point. Yeah, that's true. So, okay, yeah, time for Houdini. <laughs> Bring on Houdini. Houdini. Oh, yeah. Dr. Houdini. There was a Doctor Who in this episode. Doctor. There was. Doctor Who. Part one, 20 minutes and 13 seconds in. Doctor, she said. Doctor Who. There you go, that's the soundbite. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I liked it. Mm. I mean, I like that it happens occasionally. And I don't feel that we've had too many of them in audiobook form. I still feel like she should be saying, Doctor of what exactly? Before Doctor, what what name 
will he give her the John me- Smith. anything? Yeah, John Smith. Doctor John Smith. Oh, great! That really helps me understand. <laughs> That's what I was asking. I thought you looked like Doctor John Smith. Oh, f- fuck's sake! <laughs> it goes nowhere. Okay, I've got a thing about the ravens. Oh, let's because we it. can still be savage about these awful ravens. Uh, we certainly can. The writer seems to be playing with the listener, priming them to expect the word exterminate, because they talk about expel and expunge. Yes. And then in towards very early in episode two, Oglosi himself talks about exterminating the feline, and the doctor says, yeah. let's not be too hasty. But all their X wordplay and their gargle dialogue just made me feel like it was so derivative. And I get that there are, perhaps, there are limited possibilities in the audio channel. But are there? Are they really? Should they not be doing more distinctive voice work with this stuff? There are certain similarities between, as in, the effect applied to their voices and the Dalek voices as well. Mm. There is that, I'm trying to remember the name of the device used for the Dalek voices, but there's that reverberating, echoey quality to it. Yeah. And I feel like with the robots, like oh, cannibalists yes. or something, yeah, yeah. There's, there's just a robotic filter. It's a robotic filter because that's what they sound like. Sure. I mean, redefine what a robotic filter sounds like. Yeah, but, yeah okay, fine. That, that can be done, I suppose. But I remember I've, thinking that the audio working cannibalist was incredible, by the way. Par excellence. It was. But what I'm saying is I've recently joined this channel. I say recently. <laughs> I've done f- five episodes to this point, and already I'm beginning to feel like the realm of possibilities that I can expect from Big Finish is quite limited. I don't know, you've done many I more of these. I don't think so. Do, do they vary a lot more, usually? Sometimes, yeah. The, the two that stand out the most for me are, already mentioned it a bajillion times, what's it called? Human Resources. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> And um, something, something, and sisters of the flame. It's a, it's a, it's a, a deuce. It's a two-parter. Okay. Uh, find it online. You know how the internet works. And there are in in human resources. They have incredible soundscapes, mm-hmm. as in the the ambience, the the offices, the the echoey space cavernous, you know, the rooms. Fantastic soundscapes. And they have classic Mondasian Cybermen. And they do an incredible job of making them sound exactly like they did back then. Okay, this so is not actually new. what I'm talking about, though. No, no, wait, wait, wait. And then in the other one, in Sisters yep. of the Flame, okay. you have a whole bunch of unfamiliar new aliens. And they're not new robots. They're just new aliens. And I want to say, I, w- I I feel like I was very impressed by the production there as well. Okay, cool. But it wasn't, I mean, it, it, I can't, I genuinely cannot think of an example where they're redefining what a robot sounds like. But I can feel like, oh, wow, th- this is an alien that just, it sounds like something I've not heard before in such a way that I can perfectly envision what it would look like. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, I, so I feel like, that, no, I, I think they're really, really good. And uh, still, to this day, to my shame, I regret so many of the lower marks I gave early Big Finish uh, audiobooks. Yeah. So I, I feel like they, they probably deserved much higher marks. Yeah, I don't mean to say they can't do soundscapes, because they can and they can put... They good... did in this one as well. Yeah. They and, did in this one as and well, were, God damn it. There were good musical interludes, yep. where I they gave me a little while to just run with my imagination and get what was going on, and the music really helped that and complemented 
implemented that and that was all fine. What I'm saying is it doesn't seem very inventive when a villain comes along. If a robot comes along, it's got a metallic sort of filter on its voice. If a villain is a baddie, its voice is probably low and a bit distorted. It it all seems quite samey in the same three or four different lanes. So I'm adding another point to our upcoming audiobook adventure. Okay. Just as a challenge, redefine what a robot sounds like. Still in bold. Yes. Still in bold. Yes. We're doing this. Yes. I mean, if... if Spoiler alert. If this criticism <laughs> is to be valid, then... We must prove that it is doable. Yes. Yeah. This is a good challenge. I like it. Because, yeah, something better than just slowing down the voices going, ah, 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 Daleks are not turtles. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, I get it. But that was our first one. <laughs> yeah. Also, there were Daleks. We, yeah, yeah. We, we were trying to be recognizably Dalek. Yeah, true. Th- th- there's, that's a, this is another point from the behind-the-scenes interview that I felt like, I mean, I, I like you guys, and I enjoyed much, not all, but, but much of this audiobook. But what you just said was straight-up bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> because what's-his-face who played the Ravens was like... Mm. So I, I went online and I conducted some research and I looked into ravens and what they sound like and how they move and I tried to mimic my voice in a way that would blah, blah, blah. And then obviously they added some sound editing magic to that and some filters and shit. But, I mean, a lot of thinking went into this. Like, I mean, not really. You you did a squawk. <laughs> yeah. And then they added a Dalek sound to you and that's it. Yeah. Right? You listen to a five-second clip of a raven going, ah, ah. And then you went, I am a raven. And that's it. This reminds me, sorry, this is a tangent, but this reminds me of an interview that I saw, an old interview that I saw with Peter Stormare, the the guy, you've seen him in in a million roles as the Russian or the Ukrainian or possibly the Swede or whatever. He was the Swedish James Bond. He was Carl Hamilton in in at least one film. Anyway, he's a recognizable face. If you, hang on, wait, 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 Uh, this guy. Okay. Peter Stormare, you recognize him. So in this interview, they go, so how did you how did you start off in Hollywood? Because you're like you're big, you're not you're recognizable in Hollywood. You're in a million different films. And he goes, Yeah, well, people would come up to me and they'd go, Can you do a Ukrainian accent? And I'd be like, Yeah, I can do a Ukrainian Of course I can do a Ukrainian accent. And they're like, Can you do a Ukrainian accent? He goes, Fuck no. Like I don't know what a Ukrainian <laughs> accent sounds like. I can do uh what I imagine a an Eastern European accent to sound like, and the thing is, I know that no one in the audience can distinguish these uh, these accents except possibly the Ukrainians in the audience. So yeah, fuck it. Why why not? I'll say I can do that, and then someone would ask me, "Can you do a Romanian accent?" I'd be like, "Yeah, I can do a Romanian accent," and I do the same accent. That's what this dude did with Ravens. Yeah, he's like, uh, I did lots of research. I'm I'm the world's foremost Raven robot impersonator. I can do a Raven robot accent. Yeah. He, no, Nailed he can't. On. I couldn't tell you what a raven sounds like. Sure, this sounded kind of like... I basically did it like 30 seconds. It ago. was perfect. It was spot yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. It was spot For on. For all you know, it was spot on. That's right. You would make an excellent casting director. <laughs> <laughs> Never go outside. Make him come to you. That's the secret. Before we rate this, I'm just going to say one bullet point. I like the bit where Tamsin was rapping on the dock's chamber door or her chamber door, when he's trying to say the right part of Nevermore to the Ravens, and she's going bang, bang, bang. Oh, yes! Yeah! (laughs) That's good. That is good, right? Retroactive appreciation. (laughs) (laughs) I had a suggestion about these non-Americans. Okay. Including the American and the 
perhaps semi-American. The so-called Massachusetts-born American, yeah. Big finish. You can't be far from Oxford. Go to any second-tier university in Oxford, remain nameless, with a master's course, and there will be half a dozen or so Americans there. You can use them for an entire year. Get a bank of dialogue built up, and don't put us through these actual Americans who can't do American accents. But the thing is, I think they were American. <laughs> so what was what's going on in my head then? I, I Why don't, isn't this working for I me? Don't, I don't know. Did Americans sound different in 2010? Has Donald Trump fucked everything up for us that yes, much? Yes, he has, but that's an unrelated point. <laughs> I, I, I think, I think what's-his-face, uh, human Dalek. Yes. Dalek sec. Yes, exactly. I think he can only do that particular mode of acting. Yeah. And it, it, no offense, Mister. I can't remember your name anymore. I'm sorry. And I think it's shown through here because even in that, as you said, even there when he is tr- at least allegedly using his own real salt of the earth, honest to god accent, born with it. Yeah, Massachusetts, born and raised. That's right. Well, yeah, Massachusetts, born and raised, pretending to be New York, whatever. Yeah. Even there, it seemed fraudulent. Mm. I think that's his shtick. I think that's what he can do. American listeners, what do you think of the voice acting? Do you feel like there was a big difference between him as a pilot and him as Edgar Allan Poe? Because he did both voices. He did. I mean, they they were different voices. They were. To me, they were both equally unconvincing. (laughs) I didn't know it was the same actor, but I was prepared to criticise both actors involved. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think that proves... Yep. I, I've got a problem with him full stop and his entire range. I'm really sorry. I, I might be wrong in that, but that's how I feel. <laughs> and there's, there's That's was, Eric Lauren. Eric Lauren? Eric? Stop. Uh, stop. <laughs> Just no. stop. Go we're, home. No, we're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and feel free to come on the show. Defend yourself. <laughs> yeah, on a classic <laughs> review when I'm not here. <laughs> Audio bonus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will re-review this episode if you come on the show, Eric. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, and, and Drew will be here apologetically handing you uh, biscuits. And I will bring my American wife, and <laughs> we will see which of you is the real American. <laughs> and I know who my money's on. So thanks in advance, Eric. So one last thing. I forgot to say earlier that Amelia Fox, this is her previous in terms of Doctor Who. She went on to play Lady Winters in Doctor Who, The Adventure Games, The Gunpowder Plot. In 2011, alongside What's Matt that? Smith and Amy and Rory, I, I guess it's a computer game thing. Oh, that very cool. Phil Ford was so heavily involved in writing, if you remember. I don't remember. What? Phil Who? Ford, super hardcore, Waters of Mars, and... <gasps> yeah, that guy. That guy. Yeah. I do remember Ford. Yeah. So that's how that all ties together. And right now... Waters of Mars, fun review, by the way. I enjoyed that. And Amelia Fox is currently playing Jack Profumo's wife in the trial of Christine Keeler to bring, to bring us bang up to date. Wow. Nice. Should we rate this? <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> and now it is time to rate this. Did we laugh or hate this? Bing bong, bing bong, hey, la 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 la. Ratings. Yes, welcome to the ratings part of this episode. So we've sat here for a while this evening discussing Some this. Some time. Some time. Longer than you expected, I believe. Yes. And... To be honest with you, I was expecting us to to denigrate the writing and in in perfect unison pour our scorn down our noses, if you'll permit the melange of expressions, to a greater degree than we ended up doing. 
Okay. Overall, as I started off by saying, I recommend Podcast Land listen to this audiobook. Uh, it has fantastic production quality. Ravens notwithstanding. I'll get back to the Ravens. Right. It's eerily gothic. Paul McGann is on top form, though I'm beginning to suspect that there is no other form to the man. <laughs> uh, Tamsin gets, I think, a pretty good start. Though I maintain that this may very well be Tamsin Drew and the case of the repurposed companion script. It wouldn't be the first time. True. And the backstory and universe building in this audiobook are, I think, spot on. Like They're, they're really they're handled very well. Plus, some of the acting really gets me salivating. Mm-hmm. But some of the acting also doesn't. And those bloody ravens, those... Bloody ravens, my <laughs> goodness, do they ever epitomize how Edgar Allan Poe was not necessarily done wrong, but certainly not done fully right here. Uh, the pastiche and the, the Poe fanboyishness strike an odd imbalance at times. And as we found out at the very start of this podcast episode, the ending of this audiobook wasn't entirely clear to us, certainly not to me, in particular not to me, until you and I had had a chat about it tonight. I haven't explored his oeuvre in full, but I suspect that this is not Alan Barnes' finest moment, although it is far from a poor show. I gave the last Barnes audiobook, Death in Blackpool, 3.1, and I gave Orbis 2.0, which is probably a lower score than it deserved. But I feel justified in saying that, to me, this is a perfectly commendable and recommendable 1.8. Oh, wow, you are way below me. Oh, really? Really. You were just saying about how you, back in the old days, when you were young and foolish, rated Big Finish audios way too low, and you've given this one a 1.8. Okay, whatever. Shit, now you're making me doubt myself. No, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to stick with it. Okay, so here's what I've written. Maybe my standards for companions are too high. Okay. By which I mean, not every single person who gets to ride in the Doctor's TARDIS can be a Donna Noble. Ugh. Because <laughs> what does Tamsin do here but annoy the Doctor, refuse to listen to him or learn anything for the entire adventure, and add jibes where they're least welcome? My contention is that I feel about her right now the way you have always felt about Donna Noble. The one who shall not be named. That I in- insist on continually naming. <laughs> but so far, Tamsin only serves to illustrate how brilliant a job Catherine Tate did. Seriously, this is 2010. Catherine Tate was 2008. When put in that context, it seems really obvious to me that Nikki Wardley is taking inspiration or doing an impression of from Catherine Tate. They seem really similar. Oh. Did that not strike you at all? No, not at all. I mean, Nikki Wardley, Tamsin Drew is less accented than Donna. She perhaps has fewer outbursts, but the way she pricks at the doctor and so does lucy miller though yeah do you not find and so do lots of companions i haven't had that much familiarity with lucy miller as the thing i came in right as she was leaving maybe i'm imagining it as well i get that companions have to be sparky spunky independent-minded whatever stand up to the doctor go toe-to-toe yes but they all do that to one degree or another i got such donna vibes Interesting. From this. Okay. The bolshiness. You said the bolshiness. Lucy was bolshy, yes. And Sheridan Smith brings her own bolshiness to the table. Sure. But this just seemed like a faint echo of Catherine Tate bolshiness to me. Okay. Fine. Perhaps she will diverge in future episodes. But right now, that's where I am. And what does a companion have to do to be jettisoned after only one episode to merit no second or already for Tamsin 
third chance. And, okay, okay, can you imagine a single line that she says in this episode, cultural elevation notwithstanding, that wouldn't come from Donna's gob? They seem to be landing in the exact same places in the script. Bored now, I said I'm bored now. Doctor, you really gave that away. Uh, to me, you're just proving that Donna Noble was a generically written character. <gasps> she proceeded! <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll never win you over, but Character Podcast traits land. that could be applied to literally anyone. <laughs> Podcast land amassing in their millions behind me, and one day we will take you down. Anyway. Uh, uh, fine. I admit I still haven't watched the Eccleston series and Adam's episodes. Oh my goodness. Oh, I forgot about Adam. Oh, he's dreadful. Okay, so he only got one or two goes in the TARDIS, right? Was yeah. he in the TARDIS at all? One. What did he yeah, do yeah. that was so abhorrent? Because here, Tamsin is, is failing her first mission for me hands down how was adam worse he, he was a bermuda triangle of charisma <laughs> he, he, he was just <laughs> the, the least sympathetic character and certainly the least deserving of a ride in the tardis and then they took him to the future where he got a hole drilled into his cranium and Deservingly, then, it seems. No, as in, he asked for us. Oh, oh. You'll watch it and you'll hate him. Great. I have no doubts. And then he got dumped back in his relative present. All right. No, he was a shit bag. He, he, he was like, he was a state of the art douche nozzle. Okay, neither of those words would I apply to Tam's injury. So, yeah. okay, that's fine. And there's some really good acting here alongside some terrible United States of Corinthia accents. The atmosphere, the music, everything really came together at the end of episode one. It was gothic as with the little cat muse playing in the stereo, first in your left ear, then in your right ear, as the oh, guy is so paralyzed with fright. Oh, and can I change my rating a little bit? <laughs> I mean, yes. Okay. And I, I said it was more enjoyable than not. A second lesson wasn't a chore. No, that's true. McGann was fine. I'd have liked a little less transcendent contempt, but that seems to be his shtick. So, so okay, he fulfilled that brief. It's nowhere near a five, but sure, I gave it a 3.4. Oh, wow. It, that, that's definitely higher than I would give this, but I do feel like this now does... You have me convinced. Can I venture into the twos? Yeah, certainly. Dude, it's your podcast. It's not my podcast. Stop saying that. <laughs> I'm going to bump this up to a two... If I'm in my head, I'm bumping up Orbis to something higher than 2.0 because it probably deserved it. Yeah. Okay, I'm 2.1. Oh, now I feel like I've let my past self down. But no, 1.8 is too harsh. I've probably been too generous thinking about the crows going... Crows. Thinking about the ravens going, Protect the prosecutor! I've, as I say, I've only listened to five episodes of this audio channel, and already that seems as hackneyed as it gets. <laughs> I mean, the, the biggest negative for me is that I did not understand what was happening at the end. Yeah. And that's a huge negative. But as I said before, I mean, I recommend people listen to this. I, I found it enjoyable as well. Yeah. And as you say, there's a lot of plot and backstory to fit in, and for the most part, it's done fairly well. Oh, those accents, though. Oh, I'm sticking, I'm sticking where I am. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that's fantastic in case they are actually bona fide americans i'll let them have it 3.4 all right and thank you i feel like you've just saved my soul just a teeny tiny you've saved a, an extra <laughs> fragment of my soul here as well so thank you for that believe it or not we do have a listener mini should we read it out let's do that listener minis now let's hear from podcast land max 250 or it would get out of hand well, well, weller, it's our old friend Chris Sorella. Hell of a fella. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Welcome back, Chris. Although, wait, hang on, when did he send this? He sent this back in October last year. That's probably when we reviewed 22. Yeah, that's right. So, thank you for your patience, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> 
Once upon a prison dreary, ravens wandered weak and weary, following a quaint and curious plot of terrible bore. As I listened, really hating, suddenly up came my rating for someone finally acting, acting like a character I don't deplore. Oh, fuck me, I muttered, I can't keep up this rhythm anymore. Only this stanza, and not one more. <laughs> that was wonderful. I liked some of the concepts, continues Chris, and plot points, but felt like it could have been done better. I really hate Tamsin Drew in this. Oh. Well, well, well. She was mostly useless, except for her escapology class. Wendigo, played by Fenella Woolgar of the Unicorn of the Wasp fame, was the one saving grace. That was not who I expected. No, I was not expecting that either. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I did not expect that that was who the actress would turn out to be. I had to look it up. (laughs) No, that's, you know what? uh, Applause, applause for Fenella Woolgar. Yeah, Her, her, her character was entirely unpredictable. Yeah. Caught me off guard throughout. Yeah, the, the psychopathic elements, the tenderness, it actually all fits together. It does all make sense when you think about it. Absolutely. So, well done, Fenella. Yeah, bravo. Uh, Chris continues, I'm glad that at least one character was interesting. It is really sad when the war criminal is more endearing than the companion. Is it, though? How about Davros? <laughs> <laughs> the master. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Dare I say, the monk? Well, we'll see about that. Potentially, potentially. (laughs) Chris concludes, the Poe stuff and the other characters all seem like filler. They could have done Poe far better. In fact, the Doctor meeting Poe could have been a big finish short trip and not this boring episode. (laughs) (laughs) And Chris gives this a fairly familiar rating of 1.9. Yeah. Hey, Chris, if you sit down for an hour and a half (laughs) and have a chat with Drew... You might bump that up to a 2.1 or 2.2. Even though I did nothing but criticize. (laughs) Same here. Same here. (laughs) I don't understand how this works, but here we are. That is some good stuff, Chris. Thank you so much for sending that in. Loving the poem. Wonderful. Yeah. Join us in another three or four months, and I swear we'll get to the Book of Curls. (laughs) We have to do it soon, because I want to know. Oh, yes. I really do want to know. And I think I heard Graham Garden's voice among the acting. Who's that? Who's Graham Garden's? He's comedy royalty. He was... One of the Goonies, he's in I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. He he basically oh. originated the unbelievable truth. He he is he is a totem of British comedy who isn't Monty Python. He he's like the Monty Python B team. Wow, I've just done a Google image search and I don't recognise his face at all. Well he's mostly on radio these days. Oh I see. He he is a hilarious guy. So Fantastic. We're I looking will forward be, to it. Yes, very maybe, much so. Maybe he's the monk. Oh, that would be amazing. He he might be the monk. Holy moly. But we've got a long way to go to the we end do. of this fourth series, so That's right. Yeah. That's right. Surely breadcrumbs at this point. Yeah, well, who knows? Where are we heading to next, then? Well... Next, we're going to do either a classic or a new. If it's a classic, it will be Underworld. Really? (laughs) Not Underworld, Rise of the Lycans. Underworld. Lovely! (laughs) (laughs) And if it's a new, it will be... Listen! To what? Sorry, what? No, listen. Leon, listen! I I am. I'm I'm all ears, buddy. Leon! Oh... It's still funny. Still funny. (laughs) (laughs) I just have to remember to laugh. (laughs) If that tickles your pickle, there's more of that comment, so listen to that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, we didn't talk about the cat noises. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, we didn't. Because that clearly was not stock footage cat noises. That no. was the actress doing a cat noise. Well, I don't know who it was doing a it cat was, noise. It was a human. It was a biped doing, Absolutely. A, it doing wasn't a cat. It was an unconvincing American cat noise, which makes me think it was <laughs> probably either Fenella Woolgar or Nikki Wardley. Okay. But definitely not a cat. See, <laughs> see I think... I think Big Finish are such... Oh, you know what? It, there are two possibilities for me here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Either Big Finish are such sticklers for, for detail that they made sure the right actress did that voice work, meow work. Yeah, or actor, because at some points the cat sort of did go... Yeah. Or they use this as a fun little... Not Easter egg, whatever it's called. A little inside joke... To let everyone, perhaps even people behind the set, maybe Barnes himself is the cat. Yeah, maybe. Also, there's the fact that it's a Time Lord cat from Gallifrey, so why would it sound exactly like an Earth cat? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well... (laughs) (laughs) Glad we got that one in. Yeah, yeah. Hey all, in the meantime, (laughs) until the next time you hear from us, we might hear from you. Say hello to us on Twitter. Drew, you can be found at... Drew back when? Excellent branding. And I can be found at Ponken. P-O-N-K-E-N. Don't mess with the classic. (laughs) (laughs) Until the next time, thank you so much for listening. You have been a lovely audience. Rock on and cha-chao. Bye-bye, Doctor. Call me Master. Did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends. Don't have any friends? No problemo. Tell some strangers. Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash who back when. All in one word. Are you on Google Plus? Find us on Google Plus. That's plus who back when. And when you do, tell us why you're on Google Plus. Who Back When just got its very own Twitter account, no lie, so give us a follow. You guessed it, that's at Who Back When, all in one word. Check us out on SoundCloud, vote us up on Reddit, listen to us on Stitcher, and head on over to our website, whobackwhen.com, where you can leave a comment, submit a review of your own, and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters, and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. Not only would it make us super chuffed, and it really, really would, but as thanks, we will transmigrate your iTunes nom de plume into the credit list of trailers for fake Doctor Who audiobooks produced by Who Back When. Have a poke around our bonus episodes to make more sense of that. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next classic Who review, new Who review, or, <laughs> still funny, audio Who review. Cha-chao. Who back when?